Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Ibanez Guitars and Basses. Ibanez strives to make high-quality, cutting-edge musical instruments that any musician can afford and enjoy. Visit Ibanez.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. Welcome to the Joey Surges Forum Podcast. Today we have a really special guest. I want to introduce to you guys Jakira King. He is amazing producer and engineer three-time grammy winner is that correct jakir yes sir yeah that is quite the accomplishment and uh welcome to the show thank you for being on thank you for inviting me it's a pleasure also a uh, multi-platinum selling producer i just got to put that in there as well um <laughs> really hard to pull off these days <laughs> it is yeah i mean records uh they don't sell like they used to it's really all about uh exposure and licensing for the most part do you find that even with your really really crazy basically history of you know 30 grammy award nominations the grammys multi-platinum that even even for people at your level that the changes in the music industry are affecting your workflow or anything noticeable absolutely across the board every aspect not you know from you know i mean time is money uh so you know it's like budgets are getting smaller a lot of what I'm used to doing and what's expected of me is that we're going to record in big expensive studios. And so, you know, the cost of that stuff doesn't really change a whole lot. So it means you have to work smarter. You have to work faster. You got to kind of move around. You can't be in a big room for weeks on end. So I have to pay myself less sometimes because I, you know, the, the guys that work for me, it's just like, you know, they make, they make less money than I do and I'm not going to cut their pay. Can't shortchange the process. I've started mixing completely in the box because the technology has come up to the place where it's good enough to do it. It's really about the result, and, and you should be having fun, and the, the result should be gotten to without too much trouble. Otherwise, it sort of takes the spirit of the whole process out of it. I was actually going to ask you about that, but you kind of answered it. I was going to ask you how you keep up with the turnaround time that's expected nowadays, but also working in a hybrid setup like i know you've got a lot of nice analog gear but it's uh, i noticed that it's just harder and harder to keep up just like we were talking before we started recording that you know projects aren't really considered done until they're released uh the timetables are really really crazy and it's just harder than ever to do recalls and things like that so but i guess you're all in the box now with mixing yeah I, you know i did that the end, end of last year um Partially because, you know, I feel like that there's other people, a lot of other people doing it, and it sounds great. People are doing it successfully. Uh, some of my peers are doing it. And you just have to sort of, it's new tools. It's just you have to figure out how to how to make that work um, and turn it into a creative process and get a good emotional result that, like, you know, that, that feels musical and that moves people. Does the mix in the box sound like the mix on the desk with, you know, all the analog gear? Uh, no, it sounds different because it's a different process, but it doesn't mean that it's less valuable. You know, my, my real 1176s, they work a certain way and they sound a certain way. And the ones in the box, some of them kind of do the same thing, but you have to learn how to use those in the way that they're useful. Some tools, um, some emulations are great for using exactly the same way you'd use the analog piece. But then other times it's just Sometimes I use emulations of things that I don't really actually like the analog piece because it's actually better as a plug-in. And vice versa. You just have to have the attitude that you're going to adapt and, and learn how to do it. I still use all my analog stuff to record, and that's the important part. You know, It's just like I really work hard to try to capture a, a, not only a sound that I want to have but a performance. So really the mixing is a finishing part, and it really should be about balancing and and the, the ability to go back and, and revise stuff. You know, sometimes I've even, lately, I've even taken stuff to mastering. And I don't, I won't send my stems to mastering. I know that people do that. I think that's crazy. Cause it's weird, they, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that's insane. But, you know, but it's like if you've mixed in the box and like something at mastering and there's like, instead of fixing something and mastering maybe with a low end or you want to have the top end a little bit different, you know, you just go back to the session and, and rebounce everything, you know, reprint it all. Um it's, I mean, it's really, it's a wonderful, I think it should be embraced. I think the gripe about digital was, yeah, you know, whatever, 10, 20 years ago, it didn't really sound that good, and plugins were kind of crappy a while ago. But, you know, the technology's changed, the, the equipment 
that we use, you know, the converters and just all the things that have been associated with digital technology as we've been using it have been refined by the human ear to sort of be pleasing. And so, uh, you know, there isn't analog and digital. It, it isn't a, uh, one versus, versus the other, one being better than the other. They're just different. And they're both really useful. And I think you touched on something that for me has made all the difference in the world, which is if you approach it like a whole different process and a whole different type of gear, basically, you're going to get better results rather than trying to get your plug-in 1176 to work exactly like the real thing. A buddy of ours goes by UBK and makes some great plug-ins and great hardware pieces. Uh, he just made a distressor emulation for his new plug-in company called SliFi, and uh, his whole thing was to not really even try to make it exactly like the real thing, but to just make it more like what he kind of wishes a plug-in version would do so that people wouldn't try to compare it to the real thing. They would have to be, they would basically be forced to approach it like, you know, it's just a digital version that's kind of like it, but you have to approach it with a different mindset. That sounds great. Sounds really smart. Sounds like something I want to check out. You know, yeah. That's like the, I mean, what do we all love? I mean, Distressor is probably the last great analog piece of compressor that's been, you know, that's like, I think the Distressor is as revolutionary and, and critical to recording as like the 1176 was. Absolutely. Totally. I mean, but what's the, what's so great about it? Well, what probably, the two things, well, there's a few things, but the tack and release, like how ridiculously, how much variance you have in that, how fast you can get things to release and, uh, you know, some of the, the, the detector circuit that you can high pass into it and that you can, you can add in the harmonic distortion. I mean, it's just like a really, it's a really smart piece of gear. And I think it's, I think that's great that somebody has sort of taken that and used as inspiration for a plugin and not trying to copy it, you know, just, but doing something that's like, well, you know, it's inspired by. Yeah. yeah. His take on what a distressor would be if he had invented it or whatever. And a lot of his gear is kind of like that, and people love it. His other company is called Kush, and if you're not familiar with it... Oh, make, I know that company. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they make great stuff. Yeah, SliFi is something that... I don't know if he started as a side business or just because it has a different mentality than Kush, but uh, yeah, so he's doing some emulations with SliFi. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit because I didn't know this before today, but apparently your your initial training was actually in recording workshop in Chillicothe, Ohio. Is that right? That's right, yeah. That's awesome. So can you speak a little bit about that and, and you know how much of a role has that really played into shaping your career? Well, I mean, before I went there, I mean, I was a hobbyist re- uh, you know, a record recording engineer. I guess I didn't even know I was a recording engineer. I kind of like recorded to cassette as just as like a hobby since I was a kid. But and when did you go there, by the way? Um, I went there in I believe in 1987. Okay, long time ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and you know, I actually just visited there after I, you know, after I was with Joey in November um, out in L.A. We were on a panel together. On my way home to Nashville, I went there. I went back and visited the recording workshop because I've been talking to Jim Rosebrook, the the director of the school, <clears throat> about coming and sort of visiting and speaking at the at the school. Um, and I went back, and it, you know, it, it's a small school, it's largely unchanged. I mean, they've changed the technology since I was there, obviously, but um, it's much the same. I mean, before I went there, I really had I never been in a real recording studio, and I didn't really didn't really know what the process was like. It was pretty significant. I mean, it it's a very short program. I, I recommend it to people if they ask me like where they should go to school. You know, I don't I don't think spending tens of thousands of dollars to go and it, you know to a for like, like years <laughs> years. It's 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 such an on the job you know sort of thing, and it's so much about people skills too. I mean, I, I honestly think that most people can learn to record. Everybody's got the capability in their computer to make an album if they, you know if they just apply themselves. So really, it's you know you have to learn by experience. In terms of the school, you know it's not very expensive. It's a very short program. I was there for seven weeks, and it it's sort of you know trial by fire. You, they just throw you in the deep end, and you have to learn. I got out of there, and I I, I talked my way into um, an assistant engineer job. And um, that sort of kickstarted things. It sort of really opened opened the door for me. One of the things we talk about on here is, you know, there's different forms of education in, in this field of audio. 
And I personally think that hands-on self-teaching and motiv- being self-motivated to sort of just figure it out, trial and error type of thing, is like one of the best ways to get good at doing this. And uh, I just wanted to point out that that was a really important thing with you attending recording workshop and them giving you the opportunity to sort of learn that way because you've got the more traditional sense of school like full sale and and others like that where I don't know if those are the the best way to learn I'm not trying to put those schools down or anything but I just think that the way that I understand audio is like kind of really my own thing that I figured out by myself (laughs) well I think the length of the program has a lot to do with why it's a good way to go, in my opinion, because it basically it's like it's like you just said. It gave you a jump start. It basically showed you what a pro environment is like and threw you in the deep end. And that's, I mean, that's basically all you really need from school, in my opinion, is to learn what the standard is, kind of familiarize yourself with the basics, and then you're off. Any more than that, I feel you're just wasting time. Yeah, absolutely. And some of these programs where you go for these extended periods of time, you folks are getting themselves so deep in debt that like they get out of school and they're just so fatigued by the pursuit that it's like they, something doesn't happen for them in the first year. They kind of just They've got to pay for this debt and they've just, they sort of, they go a different direction. I think you're much better off learning from somebody else or going to like the recording workshop, that's a short program and kind of getting the basics and then spend that, spend the $10,000 on, get it, get yourself a Pro Tools rig and a microphone and, and just start to figure it out and, you know, see if you can go help somebody else that knows what they're doing and sort of observe and learn from them. Really all it is, 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 you know, going to the recording workshop. I mean, certainly I learned about signal flow and a lot of important things, but it was just it was just so that I was qualified enough to to be in a studio and be able to help out and then learn. And and you just learn by doing and, and you know, like Joey said, it's just like you have to learn your own way because there's thousands of ways to make a record. There's, you know, there's so many w- ways to put sounds together and make a combination. Now, I think we'd all acknowledge that Great records, you know, they all sort of have certain intrinsic intrinsic qualities, but it doesn't necessarily mean that certain instruments have to function in the high frequency a certain way to have a certain type of excitement. You know, you, there's lots of ways to think about that and put it together. And sometimes space and, and the lack of uh, instrumentation can be really exciting. It's It becomes like focusing in on how to achieve doing something that people connect to emotionally, you know, because music is kind of a really spiritual thing. And it uh, it's really about ideas and conveying, you know, ideas and creating theater, really. So if you keep that in the forefront of your mind when you're making EQ decisions, for example, I think it makes you a better engineer or a better producer because we like to play hardball a little bit and call it the 80-20 rule, <laughs> which is basically, <laughs> you know, having the snare turned up point. 5 dB here and there as a mix note is kind of a waste of time because does that really, you know, convey the message any better or make the album more popular? Not really. (laughs) No. Mm -mm. Yeah, I kind of have a funny litmus test. I mean, obviously you can't take this verbatim, but, you know, if you apply the litmus that would my mom listen to this song and would that mix note actually make her like the song better? Yes or no? If not, it doesn't (laughs) belong on this note. (laughs) Right. Yeah, totally. So now you've ended up here at the Blackbird. Is Are you at Blackbird Studios right now? Yeah, I am actually, yeah. That's awesome. So um, that's also a school, but also a studio that you mainly work out of. Is that correct? That's true, yes, yeah. So tell us a little bit more about um, how, you know, does that ever play a role? Like, do you, if you ever need an extra hand, do you, like, grab a student? Like, how does that work? No, I, no, I don't. You know, I try to... The, I mean, the, sort of the policy here is because there's so many high-profile artists and, and sessions here. And, you know, you really want your privacy in the studio. The, the, the student body doesn't isn't supposed to interact with the clients. There's a building on the campus that is the sort of the learning lab, I guess you, we'll call it. And then they book time, just like everybody else, in the in the rooms on the in the facility so sometimes you kind of run into them in the hallways but no i try to you know it's there's a lot of students and i don't interact with them often i sometimes i will go and like host a session for them or speak to them but uh it's kind of a tricky business because 
I'm so accessible to here. To, uh, and I could be to them. I try not to open that door too much because then I'd kind of get, I think I might be overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. Where do you get interns and assistant engineers from? Well, you know, the, with me, the turnover isn't, um, I mean, I, I have gotten some interns from, from the academy, but it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's a little bit more of a, a selective, I guess, thing. I, you know, I, I would look to, I'd look to maybe the, the instructor's, or somebody for a recommendation if I needed somebody. A lot of times, it's I get emails from people, and it, I just go on a feeling. I've uh, I've had people, you know, I've had people email me, and I agree to meet them and have a conversation with them or a phone call. A lot of it has to do with, um, I mean, the, the last person I hired was a friend of the family that moved here from Arizona. It just really depends, because um, a lot of it for me is about people skills and just how it is to be around somebody, you know. So I don't really, there isn't really any, any particular method. Uh, I don't have a lot of turnover either. I, I, I try to keep a pretty consistent team because I think that, that that's helpful. I, I don't want to constantly be training somebody to help me because uh, that's not really that much of a help. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, we, we definitely speak to what I feel to be the next generation of audio professionals on this show. So we definitely try to kind of show them that there's a lot more to this than understanding how a compressor works. And uh, you just confirmed it right there. You know, people skills, being pleasant to be around and uh, in the studio because it's a creative environment. You know, you don't want to have bad attitudes and, and things like that get in the way of, of the process. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's important. It's important, certainly, that someone understands. I mean, I want somebody that's going to be around to understand you know, generally what a compressor does, but I'm not going to turn to them and say, Hey, can you set the compressor for me? I'm, you know, it's like, there's an engineer there. I'm going to do that. You know, that it's more about like, you know, Hey, can you, can you, I mean, this guitar pedal needs a battery or, you know, we need lyric sheets printed out or, Hey, can you get the lunch order together? You know, all, a lot of silly things like that, but it's just like when you're an intern and you're around and you're helping with a process in small ways like that, it's not, it's not a small way. It's just not, you're not on the front line. You're, you're part of the support. But then the thing is, is you, you become part of the team and over time you're given more responsibility. You know, it's like, Hey, can you take this uh, session and make sure all the fades are good on this vocal file? Because we need to consolidate this and send this to so-and-so, you know, it's like over time you get little jobs like that as you learn to trust somebody and you know, that um, you can rely on them. And then, you know, so the benefit for the intern is, um, you know, watching the process happen and, and learning about the people skills and how people interact because it's really not that important at the, in the beginning that you know how to EQ and compress something. You, you'll learn how to do that, you know. And to me, it's all about people stuff. I mean, as a record producer and even as a you know, mixer engineer, you're, we're always trying to interpret someone's vision and trying to help them realize that that's not necessarily that's a creative thing it's not a t it, i mean it, it, you do it through technical means but it's really about a creative conversation and sometimes the artist isn't going to tell you that you know they want 10k turned up they're going to say it's it sounds dull or it's not very exciting or I wish yeah. it was brighter or, you know, things like that. So you have to be able to communicate with people. I think you also said something that I think is important. And I know that I've experienced this with bad interns, and I'm sure you have too, Joey, which is you mentioned the privacy issue that, you know, with high-profile artists, the privacy is of utmost importance. And I think that along with the people skills, a good intern needs to understand that whole game of how to not make a a known artist feel weird or fanboyed or, you know, any of, any of the above things that is going to ruin their vibe. Well, totally. I mean, even, even if, I mean, the studio should be a sacred place. And the thing is, it's like, even if it isn't a famous person or, I mean, soon to be famous or it doesn't matter. It's just like, if you have a creative person, what you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to create an opportunity for them and you're trying to create a place where they feel safe because nobody, I mean, how many times do we do like do we record a vocal and it's just one pass? You know, it's just like where they just like they have to figure it out sometimes, and they have to be they have to sound bad, you know, and they have to you know it's just like it's making records is kind of a little bit of a you know sleight of hand, you know. This is there's it's a magic show, and you know you gotta somebody's gotta feel good and feel comfortable and uninhibited to be able to to find their best 
And if they feel like, you know, if they feel like they're, that there's bad vibes in the room or, or that, you know, that someone else's vibe is making them sort of feel aware of their presence and not comfortable, then, you know, that's not, that's not going to work. I don't want, I can't have that person around that they totally endanger the whole process. Yeah. You definitely want to have someone who's for lack of a better term blends in. I've, I've definitely had situations where I think the artist performed differently based on who was around because they felt like they had to live up to their reputation or something like that. And that can be a pretty weird experience, especially when you're the when you're the producer, because now your job is to get this person out of the room <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or out of the building. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes maybe that sometimes that could be a benefit. You know, it's just like I always it's like I love well, I love and hate it when someone new comes into the to the studio and you're you're in the middle of working on something or you got a rough mix or it's like a track is like 75 percent done and you let them hear it or they hear it. You suddenly you're aware your own awareness, my own awareness of the way it sounds or kind of what's going on with it changes because oh, I'm, yeah. I'm suddenly aware. I'm suddenly I'm I'm thinking about what they're feeling or, you know, um, I'm vibing off of them. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting, there's a lot of, you know, social politics and just stuff that goes on in the studio. That's really, really crazy. And you, you just have to have a can do attitude. I mean, sometimes you have to play hardball and sometimes you have to challenge people and you have to have hard discussions. Sometimes you have to have arguments, but you always, if you want to be successful, you have to, you know, in, successful in arguing your point, you have to do it with respect. If you lose your shit and, you know, go nuclear on somebody, there's, you're just not going to have a positive outcome. So you have to, you kind of always have to be playing the game of keeping, keeping momentum and the spirits up, you know, even when things are, even when things are tough. I think the whole cliche of the producer going nuclear on people, I think that's uh something that got dramatized in studio documentaries from past eras and nowadays that kind of stuff doesn't it doesn't fly for musicians to act like rock stars from the 70s it doesn't fly for managers to act like they're big time managers from the 80s and it doesn't fly for producers to really act like Gordon Ramsay too much anymore I don't think <laughs> I think people have a lot less patience than they used to for that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about gear because you're you come from the school of analog and now you're embracing the school of digital and and also melding the two together. But I'm curious about this. How often do you track on tape? Because I've never actually had the the honor to do that. Well, I would say uh, I would say we probably still do it like a couple times a year. Yeah, I mean, but but there it's um it's really just about capturing uh mostly like the the, the basic tracks which uh, a lot of times are drums and bass, sometimes a guitar, and occasionally a vocal. Some vocals will make it. You know, it's really about. I mean, I like to try to record when I'm working with bands or just an artist. I, I like it, you know, where you have to bring session musicians in, or not have to, but you get to, uh, whatever. Uh, I try to I try to record as a performance, at least as a foundation, even if you only keep one element, you know, just because I feel like it informs the the song uh, uh, making the record. But, um, you know, analog. A lot of times I do it just because that's the experience the artist wants to have. I, I feel like at this point, it's not really there's not really a specific advantage. I mean, it, the transients are different when you record to analog. You know, you, you get a little bit of a different sound. Um, it can be a little bit more pleasing in some ways, but it's not, I don't necessarily feel like it's better. Sometimes I choose it because I want the drums to have that softer, transient feeling, or sometimes it's because the artists, that's the experience they want to have. Um, but for me, I'm quite happy to just to go straight into the computer. I have, um, oh, I don't know, maybe a year ago, I bought a Burl Mothership, um, and mm. I think it's, it's a really... It. It's a really great converter, so I, I enjoy that. You know, the I think the last record I made completely on tape um, in terms of recording process was the Dawes record that I did a few years ago. Uh, I did I did transfer once all the recording was done. I did transfer into the 
into Pro Tools and I mixed in a hybrid. I mixed from Pro Tools in a hybrid situation. How many ins and outs do you have on your mothership? It is 16 by 16. Oh, sweet. I'm running a 12 by 16 right now. They're fantastic. Sometimes I, sometimes I borrow or rent a card or two from a friend to expand it. But, you know, my 16 by 16 is uh, for my main inputs and outputs is enough for me. I have also have a on my on that um, on that rig. I have also an Avid IO that's uh, uh, 16 by 16. So it's it's a 32 input output Pro Tools rig. But you know, it's like I, I you know you kind of mix in stems or you know when I mix on my desk when I mix out to my desk. I, you know, 16 outputs is plenty for me. When you track drums, how many inputs are you usually running? Um, you know. F- for me, uh, for me as an engineer, I'm you know somewhere between twelve and twenty. I like to try to print as few tracks as possible with drums and use as few microphones as possible. Sometimes I have a lot of inputs just so I have options, so it's easy to. I might have like four or five room mics up, and I might combine a couple of them, or I might just choose one or two of them, and not use necessarily the same exact room setup for every song on drums. I try to keep it minimal, um, it, but it just depends. Now, the engineer that works for me a lot, Lowell, um, he, he, he cuts more tracks than, than I would cut, but I'm fine with that, you know, because we did, we ended up making choices down the road. He, he would prefer, you know, his, his preference is to kind of record more than you actually use. I kind of like to make the decisions before I even hit record. And, and not have things to think about or like, you know, just make the decision and move on. Yeah, we've touched on that a little bit and uh, tried to, because I notice a lot of guys like on our forums and stuff, they'll they'll have this analysis paralysis where there's just way too many buttons and knobs that they can tweak mm-hmm. all the way through the entire process and they never get anything done. So I always try to impart on people that you should commit and just, if you commit your drum compression and you find out that you hate it four days later well you're gonna learn a lesson from that <laughs> exactly i mean it happens all the time when you mix too i mean just take the current thing we're doing here we have a service where we mix a song live called nail the mix and we have like an alternative rock song and everybody in the forums is like oh well how come the toms are printed stereo and it's just like who cares just mix the song <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Grab yeah, an I mean, EQ and go. Come on. Yeah, I mean, hey, you know, it's like when I've made when I've made uh, rock records on sixteen track when it was just analog. I would, you know, I might have three tom mics and two overhead mics, but I'd print that. I'd print all five to two tracks. You know, I'd make the blend. I might put like a little bit of light gating on the toms and just balance it and go. You know, it's just like, I mean, I I, I did a remix recently on for somebody's song. It's a popular song that I've heard on the radio. It's not like a, it sort of has a retro sound to it. But when I got the files to do the remix, the drums were on one track. The drums were in mono. Now, granted, it was a simple part, but you know, it's like that was it. That was the that was what they recorded for the drums. They just mixed it all to mono and went with it, and it's pretty pretty great. (laughs) That's awesome. Like everything, like overheads, rooms, kicks, snare, everything, on one mono track. It was on one track. Nice. They printed it the way they wanted it to sound, and I applaud them for that. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's like, look, if I got really stuck with it, what what could I do? I could put in some kick and snare samples. You know, I could put in some cymbal wash if I needed it. I could put in toms. You know, I could just, you know, I could add some if I if that was something I needed to do. I, you know, I, I know that like, you know, if you make a mistake, you can you can you know you can fix it with EQ. It's just like. That's how you learn. Just like Joey said, you, you make that mistake once and it's like, well, okay, you learn from it. It's, you're, never, you're not going to learn by just giving yourself alt- tons of options, you know, unlimited choice. You're, you're actually not going to get to a great result because you're spending too much time you know, caught up in all these decisions instead of just being creative. Yeah, you really have to begin with the end in mind and kind of know what you're getting into before you mix a track or produce a track and leaving infinite amount of decisions downstream for somebody else to de- decide isn't really conducive to the end product or creating something that's an emotional work of art that somebody's going to want to connect with. Absolutely. I mean, would, wouldn't you guys all agree that as you become better mixers, you become better recording engineers? I know that's true for me. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yes. 100 percent. Yeah. So, I mean, so, you know, just take that, you know, the decisions you end up making in a mix, like, well, like where you turn microphones off, like somebody sends you something 
And, you know, I've been sent, I've been sent tracks where they're, you know, they have stereo overheads and, you know, they haven't spaced them really well. And like the, the drums kit sounds lopsided in it or whatever, you know, it's just like, I just pick the one that sounds the best and put it in the middle, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so it's just like, so from that, I've learned that a lot of times when I'm recording, it's just like, I put one great overhead over the middle of the drum kit and then I mic the hi-hat, maybe I'll mic the rod cymbal and then those spot mic cymbals, hi-hats, are my stereo image, and I just have one solid, you know, overhead picture of the drum kit, and that makes me happy, you know, so. That's really cool, and I think this is something that's important for our audience to understand, is that you can talk about all these advanced miking techniques, and you can talk about parallel compression all day long, but can you hear what the drummer's playing? Because that's all that really matters, right? Like, (laughs) 100%. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about your mixing workflow and how you handle recalls because, you know, in the analog realm, that used to be a big deal. And uh, I think a lot of guys switching to hybrid or even going completely in the box are starting to really benefit from that um, because it makes the workflow a lot more simple. Do you encounter anything... Because I know like maybe a, a project that I would work on, maybe the most advanced thing that I would get asked to do is to like maybe turn the all the vocals up and maybe do an instrumental version. But I can imagine something like a Kings of Leon record, you might have to print like bass up, bass down, vocals up, vocals down. Uh, maybe they want like 10 different versions of a song for some reason. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I'll answer the last question first um, on the, you know, the, that stuff. I'm, I'm not someone that prints a lot of versions, you know, on the King stuff, you know, it's just like I would print a final mix. They might have a, I would send them in my mix reference. They might have a couple tweaks and then I'd print it, call it final. And then if there was a, you know, if there was a, a revision that wanted to come back after the, um, the final mix, then I just, I'd kind of recall the mix and do an alternate version. I didn't, I don't really print a lot of, you know, bass up, bass down, all the kind of variations. I, I do vocal versions, vocal up, vocal down. So, you know, five, 10 years ago, you, you know, you just have to do, you just have to do recall notes on the Kings of Leon, uh, record. I, I was mixing in my, in a hybrid situation. And that's probably what I should probably talk about the most is sort of how I've mixed in the hybrid situation because now, like I've said, I'm mixing all in the box and that's not very interesting to talk about because we all know that you just, you know, you just open the file back up and there it is. Um, (laughs) You know, what I learned over time in mixing is that, you know, even when I was mixing in all analog, you end up using your analog gear in very similar ways. You know, it's like my 1176, I might, you know, I might... When I'm using it on a vocal, I probably use it pretty much with the same settings every time. Um, I might have to adjust the input or output, but you know the, the style of compression and, and those choices are kind of similar. And then when you get to using that stuff in a hybrid situation, I can, after the fact, in the computer, I can manage how much level I'm putting into the into the compressor, so I don't necessarily have to adjust the input. So what I got into doing is uh, I would spend a, a, probably a couple days starting a record mixing. I'd spend the, I'd spend a lot of time on the first song to kind of figure out what my template was and get all my analog gear set up kind of the way that I felt like it was it was going to work. And you know, to be honest, it's I wasn't changing stuff a lot. It's, you're kind of almost at that point optimizing the recording to hit the the analog gear a certain way. And, you know, this is this is kind of a technique that like Chris Lord Algae or Michael Brower, a lot of these guys, it's what they're doing. You you know, it's just like you you might I might change the level, the return level of my parallel compression. You're not doing drastic things. So once you kind of get the all the analog gear set up in the hybrid situation, then, you know, as you go through each song, all the all the adjustment is really in the computer and all the automation is in the computer. If you need to do automation post processing, then you know, I would use an analog insert, like a, for my vocal chain. I, because you, of course you don't want to automate into your compressor. I would use an analog insert, and just you know, I got over the idea that oh, I'm converting it multiple times. It's like, well, who cares? This is what I need to do. Just use a good converter and and set it up, and then you know, you can mix each song with the basically the same template, analog template, uh, with the gear, and then. Then you're just able to open the sessions and, and adjust things from there. 
over time, you know, does the mix sound a little bit different because the analog stuff is changing, you know, like, you know, like the values of things change and the gain drifts and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's close enough that, that, that for years, that's how I worked. And then more recently, like maybe two, three years ago, uh, I started printing stems of stuff. I, for a long time, I resisted stems. I kind of felt like um, if I'm printing stems, then I'm giving the label my intellectual property because they're always asking for stems. It's like they can basically take my stems and recreate the mix and they don't have to call me or pay me to do, to do a recall. So for a long time, I was basically like, no, I'm not giving you stems. But then I realized, you know, like, okay, stop being, stop being, you know, stubborn about this because if I print stems, then, then that's, it's a much easier recall for me. And I, I realized because I had one main rig that I did all my mixing on that I couldn't do a recall if I was, I couldn't do a recall for somebody else if I was in the middle of making a mix for, for somebody because all the gear was set up different. So print the stems and then once I have the stems printed, I can, I can pull it up on a different, uh, I can pull it up on a native rig or my laptop and make the volume adjustments uh, there. The tricky thing about, the thing that I really had to work out about printing the stems and having um, it sound like my final mix is like, well, okay, so how do I deal with the, the mix bus compression? And so what I started using was a, a compressor that had a key input, a sidechain input, and I would print an uncompressed mix that I would then feed to the to the side chain of the compressor. So it's always the same. So it's all so every track, um, as I'm printing the bass stem, the bass stem is getting the same compression that that would be happening for the mix. So every stem has the same compression going on to it. And so then when you kind of put it all together, I mean, honestly, it's so cl- it's so close. It's you know it's very usable. So I mean, maybe that'll help. Maybe that'll help somebody out there that that really wants to to learn um, and and be in that hybrid analog environment. You know, it's like, is there anything else? Like, maybe could elaborate. That- I mean, that's a lot of that stuff that you just touched on. I never even thought about. Of course, I'm not a a big hybrid guy, but I think that's some really interesting ideas there, especially the the key input. Yeah, um, that's actually makes perfect sense. It's such a simple idea i can't believe i've never thought of that before but that solves the problem right there that <laughs> well it took a lot i mean honestly it took me a long time to figure to figure it out you know and, and then how to um how to um you know how to adjust the gain because the the sidechain input on my compressor is it's a mono input you know and so you know figuring out like what gain adjustments i needed to make and, and actually when i got to the newest version of pro tools where and part of it had to do with the pan law in the old version I was using because it used to be 2.5 and now it's 3. I could just turn the mix down. Now I can just turn the mix down 3 dB, sum it to mono, and send it to the sidechain input, and it's exactly the same. So, yeah, you know, pan law is really important. I think a lot of um, new guys overlook that as well. That makes me think of something that, ha- that that's just like it's it's very important for us to know what things do technically. But yeah. never, never, ever assume – that because you have technical know-how or you, you you know the way something should work, don't just assume that it's working that way. Listen, test it, you know, and and even if even if it is working correctly and and you um, and it doesn't sound the way you think it should, make it sound the way you think it should. Not not just be frustrated or accept it because of you know it's some technical thing. It's in the end we have to forget all this technology stuff. And just use our use our ears and our, you know and work that way. Well, the thing is, this gear is made by people, and the descriptions of what the gear is supposed to do is they're also all written, made by yeah people. they're all written by people. They're all <laughs> fallible and uh, not completely accurate. So I tell people this all the time. Don't like for instance, a great example is like with a drum sampler software program like superior drummer or something don't just trust that it's going to spit everything out right in phase all the samples out in phase with each other don't just trust that it's going to do that because you paid a lot of money for this you need to go and check once you print everything like don't just trust the machine totally 100 percent. and and you know what the thing is is like phase on drums it's a 50 50 proposition and the thing is you know half the samples 
that you work with out of a you know out of a sampler or you know whatever a drum library. The half of them, you know, got to check the phase. Just because it's a sample doesn't mean it's it doesn't mean the polarity is correct. You know. Absolutely. And then there's another thing which I, I think uh, you know I talk about too much, but I think everybody should consider what what I call like absolute polarity. It's just like sounds pushing the speaker as opposed to pulling the speaker. We all know the difference between, you know, if you got two mics and one, if their phase is not in agreement, if it's like the polarity is opposite, you know, it's just like there's a cancel, there's a serious canceling effect. But, yeah. you know, if you just have one microphone on a source, is the interpretation of what the microphone doing, is it, is it articulating the speaker the right way? Is it pushing the speaker? Because if the kick drum, it's like if you're only listening to the kick drum, let's say, if it's pulling the speaker, that's not the way it's supposed to work, and it sounds different than if it's pushing the speaker. And I think that that's something that people overlook, and they need to, that, that's, that's an engineering skill. It's like the phase switch is, is also a sonic choice. It's not just to make two things agree. It's, it's a choice. So it's that's something that I think everybody should spend because for me for years I did it wasn't until Richard Dodd said something to me about like ten or fifteen years ago that's like a light bulb went off in my head and I was like oh I I need to check this out and it has been it has been huge for me. So basically, just finding the sweet spot for every microphone in relation to every source it makes just as much difference as whether you're flipping the phase or not. You're changing how it uh, plays back in the room. Which, you know, easy. I think it's funny. It's easy to forget that you're basically trying to make a re, uh, how can I word it? Like they played, they played the music and now you're capturing it so that somebody else can play it back. It's like really a very simple concept, but you're right. Well, I mean, we're either creating for the first time, if you've recorded something direct and you're using like a plug-in amplifier, you're creating what the listener hears is the first time it's been an acoustic event, but a lot of times if you're miking something, you're capturing an acoustic event and then you're then you're representing it. Yeah. And you know, to me, there's three there's three elements of the record there's three elements that we have in recording. There there are the transducers and that includes the microphones and the speakers. There's the amplifiers and that include you know the way we manage sound and that includes like you know, um, and I would include passive circuits in that too. But you know. Uh, EQ, compression, gain, all that, all that stuff is just like basically it's it's amplifier. It's like it's you're modifying current, and then you have the storage medium. Those are the only three elements there are in recording, and so you have to understand the big thing to really understand is the transducers, how they work on the on the capture side and how they work on the reproduce side. I think it's I think I think that's something that should be thought about and considered more than it is i definitely agree with you on the on the pushing thing and getting the getting everyone on board to do polarity property properly because i think that's definitely heavily ignored i i'm probably guilty of of doing it uh myself <laughs> it's a common trend though everybody likes to skip over all the basics and fundamentals which are actually the most important stuff to master and they like to go grab all the super advanced techniques and because it makes you feel better like yeah i'm doing this really advanced processing thing but they screw up the polarity absolutely you know what i, I always like if i'm having trouble eqing something because like i hear something and i know how i want to eq it if i go and i start uh, trying to eq it and it's not really I'm not really getting the result like I think I should. That the first thing I do is then I go check the polarity because almost 100% of the time when I have that sensation of I can't EQ this properly or the compressor's not reacting to it properly, it's because the polarity's wrong. Very interesting. Excellent tip. Love that. Joel, do you want to do this rapid fire section? Yeah, absolutely. So, Jakir, we're going to go through a bunch of different instruments and processes and you can feel free to chime in with whatever you're comfortable sharing. So if you have some secret sauce or something that you think is off limits, feel free to omit it. But I'm just going to rapid fire off a bunch of stuff and feel free to tell us what you like and don't like on it. Yeah, just Sound whatever good? comes to mind. Sounds good. All right. So what mic and pre for kick drum? And this is all in the realm of American rock, like an American rock record, for example. Sure. I mean, I, probably my, my favorite is a D12 Neve 1081. Uh, but you know, but then I mean, gosh, 421 RE20, uh, D112, a FET 47. You know, there's tons. Most uh, another thing is almost every every good dynamic vocal microphone works good for kick and snare. Have you ever tried a SM7 on a kick drum? I have. 
I have. It's awesome, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't get you have to you have to really find the the sweet spot to get the low end, but yeah, I mean you right, don't have yeah. to EQ any articulation in. I like the beater side SM7. It's really a cool sound. Absolutely. I love putting a mic on the on the batter side. All right. So um, what microphone and pre for electric bass using a bass amp? Using a bass amp. Um, yeah, you know, here I'm going to say uh, Neves again, like 1073s. My favorite bass amp mic is a, uh, a U47. So, you know, I realize it's not everybody can has access to a U47, but like a good tube mic that has like a really fat response and that, that actually you're going to drive. I mean, a bass amp is loud, so it's going to actually start to overload the microphone. I love, I love putting distortion on bass. So it's just like getting a little bit of extra hair and fuzz on the, on the tube mic is great. My favorite bass tracking compressors are, um, the old DBX one sixties with the VU meters, you know? And, uh, I think the universal audio emulations of those are pretty good. Sorry. Which microphone for electric distorted guitar? Yeah. 57. If you got, I like, if I have access to like a U67, a Neumann U67, I like that. Ever use ribbons? Yep. I was just going to say like the, the Royer 121 is a pretty good choice. And, and there's a real, there's an inexpensive mic called a fathead. I think that's what it's called. It's a, you know, that's a, that's another good choice. Uh, Audio Technica makes some ribbons uh, that can take a lot of sound pressure level that are good. I really, yeah, I really do like ribbon mics. Also, the Bayer 160 is a great ribbon mic for guitar. Do you ever find yourself doing like, like an on-axis dynamic and then an off-axis like ribbon mic, or, or do you, like, is there any special sort of miking techniques that you've discovered over the over the years that you're particularly fond not of? not especially um I, you know i like to mic like if you've got multiple speakers in a cabinet or an amp i like to put different microphones on them the most important thing is you get them the same distance from the cones and uh you know no nothing i don't i don't put the microphones right up on the speakers you know i give a little bit of space just to let the just to let it breathe and the low end develop and so that you're not so so specifically focused on a certain like a, a very small part of the, the speaker um yeah. i like to back it up just a little bit to get a little bit of life and, and space around the sound i think i think the thing that people don't consider is that if you've got an amp in like a booth um if you just put it up against the wall or in a corner especially if it's an open back cabinet you've got sound that's kind of like flying out the back and hitting the wall and then coming back through the front of the speaker and that's hitting the microphone too so you're getting standing waves and cancellation so like the same importance that you you put on placing where you put the drum kit in the room i always even amplifiers in a in a iso booth i always just try and find the best spot sometimes you, you know i just pick them up and turn them around you know like move them around until i feel like that the sound is the clearest because you know then you're then you're kind of in a good spot where the, you're not going to get frequencies building up or canceling in the microphones yeah, it makes, makes a huge, huge difference. I think a lot of people, especially in heavier genres, don't understand how it would make a difference when you have a cabinet that's blaring loud and a microphone that's right up against it. How can it possibly make a difference? How is it picking up anything but just the signal that's coming right in from the speaker? But it makes a big difference how how treated the room is and where you put it in the room. Absolutely. Well, totally. I mean, the thing is, is because it's all about low end. Low end is the hardest thing to get right in a recording and a mix. And like, if you've got, I mean, just think, this is what makes me, what I think about is like, if you've got the microphone diaphragm in a place where there's a lot of low frequency building up, what's that low frequency going to be doing to the diaphragm of the microphone? It's going to be holding it still. So it's going to be, it's not only are you getting like a weird frequency interaction that the microphone has to sort of interpret but it's also you're going to get this sound pressure level and this compression sort of thing acoustic thing happening that's going to be working against the diaphragm of the microphone if the diaphragm of the microphone is being slowed down by low frequencies then it's not going to be as compliant to the high frequencies so you know and that's these are things to consider it's like it's the same thing of like polarity that i'm talking about like in your in your speakers if you've got too much like subsonic low frequency that you that's not that's not part of what you want to hear in the mix or that you're even hearing the thing is is if the speaker is having to try to recreate 10 cycles while it's also trying to recreate 10,000 cycles well it's got to do both and 
to be able to do the 10 cycles, it's got to move slow. And so it's not going to be able to move as fast, you know, uh, for the 10,000 cycles. You just, you need to get to know your speakers. You need to know, make sure your speakers are in the right spot. And, um, because all these things are, 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 are things to think about. And this is supposed to be rapid fire and I'm talking on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. no, this is good because uh, it's nice to know uh, why you do that. So well, hit, that's hit me with something else. Okay. Which uh, chain would you run a gritty male vocalist through? A uh, gritty male vocal through? Yes. Uh, like as a record chain? Yeah. Um, probably, you know, I'd probably go with my SM7 and, you know, like an API or something. Something that had some articulation and then um it just really i mean vocals are so tricky i mean the sometimes like if you go if i go to a new studio where i've never been before and and um i don't really know the microphone locker that well one of the first things i want to do is i want to have the vocalist sing on all the mics that i think i might possibly want to use for them and find the best possible mic for the, the voice and then once I find the microphone, shoot out a bunch of microphone pre's, and then once I have a recording of the voice with the microphone and pre that I want, then I'll audition all the compressors because the voice is such is the hardest thing to capture, and sometimes the the least likely thought of a microphone might be the best. Um, so I, I want to make sure that I haven't actually put that microphone on my you know overhead or something. Yeah. Okay. What about which microphones would you prefer for drum overheads in a mid-size room? A mid-size size room. Um, 414s, Coles, U67s, something like that. I like you know, not small. I don't. I'm not really a big fan of uh, small diaphragm microphones as overheads um, because I, I mean, they're great if you want to just capture a cymbal sound. Um, but I'm tr- I, I want to capture the, like the low frequency and the sort of the body of the the kit as well. Um, and sometimes using a Coles microphone because it's uh, a figure eight pattern, it's bidirectional. You're going to get a little bit of ambience coming back on the backside of the mic, and then then you can play with the proximity it is to the kit and how much ambience you're getting. And w- would you compress those microphones or? What's kind of your what's your compression take on those? A little bit. I, I like to overheads. I usually give a little bit of like eleven seventy six style compression to just just really not like it's so it's sitting on the sound the whole time. But you know, like if the like the toms or the snare drum gets kind of just knocked back into you know down just a little bit, a couple dB or two, you know, just to kind of glue the sound together a lot, a little bit. Not nothing very aggressive. The place that I use aggressive compression on drums is like room mics. Um, I try to not over. I try not to compress or overdo it too much on my close mics. Uh, it's really about tuning the drums well and, and getting a good m- placement. The snare drum I compress through a distressor, and you know sometimes that'll get like three or four dB of compression. Speaking of room mics, do you have a favorite set or several sets of room mics that you prefer? Um, it depends on the room. Uh, you know, I, I always love having ribbon mics. I like the AEA. Um, uh, R84s, Coles mics. I like to put ribbon mics low to the ground, try to keep them away from cymbals and down where the low end is. Um, but it, I, I like to walk around a room and sort of find the spot where the room sort of really accentuates the snare drum nicely. And where I find that spot, I kind of make a judgment call like, well, is it, does it feel bright enough? And if it's not bright enough, then I'll use like a bright microphone like a, a C12 or a 414. Or if it's like this is a good spot for the snare drum, but it's a little bit bright, then I might use a dynamic mic or a ribbon mic there. And then I find a spot for the kick drum and, you know, I kind of do it that way. I'm not a big stereo room mic guy. I I like, you know, I like a lot of things in mono because I mix in stereo and, and recording with fewer microphones to give me, uh, so I don't get into like spatial and phase issues, um, is sort of my preference. That's really smart. Oddball question. How do you handle an organ? <laughs> um, what kind of organ? <laughs> Can't answer a question with a question. No, <laughs> if it's a B3, um, like with a Leslie cabinet, I'll usually just mic the top. Usually the low, the low frequency stuff is loud enough on the bottom. And um, unless you're making a, a record where the B3 is like a feature instrument, uh, you don't really need that low frequency stuff. You're really just looking for the the tonal quality and the, um, the left and right image of the cabinet sort of, you know, doing its thing. And then, you know, I mean, other than that, it just sort of depends a lot. Like sometimes I'll put like, uh, if it's like an old kind of key organ, like a keyboard, like a a Farfisa, I'll put it through some pedals and an amp. You know, I like put Wurlitzers through amps. I like to put things through amps. I mean, I put amps in front of drums too. Like I'll put microphones 
I'll put a microphone in the kick and send it through a guitar amp and then mic the guitar amp and sometimes put like a tube screamer on it just and like roll all the high end off. So I get this like this really beefy, fuzzy kick drum that I can blend in with the with the the real thing, you know, um, instead of kind of blowing it up after the fact, because then I also kind of want that distorted, rude sound in the room too to kind of become part of the texture of the of the ambience. Sweet. That's pretty cool. Okay, and last but not least, do you have a favorite analog two-bus chain to mix into? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of times what I'll do is um, I have a Sontech EQ, which is similar to a GML EQ, and then I'll put that into uh, my Dramastic Obsidian Compressor, which is like an SSL copy. But I've used Neve 2254s, sometimes... Uh, if I'm going to put EQ on a mix, which I always do, I want like a multi... I want like at least three or four bands where I have, where I feel like I have good frequency selections and I can, I can either make the top and and the high and low frequencies, either shelf or peak. And, um, I always EQ into my compression, but, uh, the thing I would suggest would suggest for everybody that's using an analog mix bus, uh, chain is balance your mix before you plug anything else in. Don't like, if you have whatever EQs you have available in the room, and compressors don't commit them until you make a balance of your mix and listen to it and kind of see what it needs like don't rely on the mix bus compression to do your mix for you balance it and get it get a good mix use the compressor to glue your mix together and then once you have a balance eq to sort of um, take care of the things uh that are intrinsic in the recording because all recordings and records, you know, some things are really like focused in the low frequency. Some things are focused in the high frequency or mid frequency. And and then as people have been recording stuff, if they've done a good job, it'll all hang together in the way in the it, with the personality that it's supposed to have. And then you can get in there and if you're dealing with a record that's very mid rangey and everything is kind of glued together in the mid range, well then you kind of put a little smile face on it and you you find the EQ in the room that will help you do that the best and the, and then the compressor that will help you glue things together and then so I always sort of start my mixes by balancing it, addressing what kind of overall EQ I want to do to the mix to kind of give it some shape so that I'm not in there doing the same EQ on every individual element to kind of give me that end equation then you can specialty eq the elements within the mix to sort of fit into what your template is Um, that's like the top down mixing method yeah exactly i guess yeah i mean that's really cool yeah that's a that's a really uh i think that's a really good way to work especially in a hybrid scenario just my opinion and sometimes you know sometimes i use two eq sometimes i'll sometimes i'll use um an EQ uh, that's really good for like opening up the high end and and then you know maybe some APIs if I want to have if I want like a a pretty decent boost in the top end around 12k then I don't mind bumping it up you know having the 2 dB of boost then you know it's it's just you know you got to play around you got to use you got to figure out which what with what the with the tools you have available what what's the how can they best serve you I don't I think it's a bad idea to always assume that you just set everything up the same way every time, and and then that's the way it should be. You, you should learn how everything is useful, and then apply it as needed. I think we're about uh, out of questions here, but I wanted to ask you one final thing, unless unless the other guys have anything to I ask. I think we've uh, pretty much covered it. These answers have been great, by the way. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. What kind of advice would you give someone in 2016 who wants to be where you are? Um, well, I love what I do. So first of all, you have to love what love love this because it takes a very long time. I mean, you know, uh, have I achieved many of my goals and dreams? Yes, I'm very thankful. I've been doing this a really long time, and you have to stay. I've had to stay passionate and work hard. I mean, there are many times at points in my career where things weren't going well and I wasn't as successful as I am now. And I just, you know, I just had to decide, I felt like quitting. I just had to decide that I was just going to keep showing up and keep working. It's not really work, but I was just going to keep applying myself and and sticking to it and just sort of like self-examination. It's like, well, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I love this, not because I want to make a lot of money. You know, it's, uh, so you have to have that attitude um, there aren't a lot of jobs out there for people starting out. There aren't a lot of studios um, where you can go get an, an internship and 
and, and, and work your way up through the ranks to be the chief engineer. That does, that stuff doesn't really exist so much anymore. What it, you know, there's a lot of small studios, a lot of do it yourselfers, um, buy a little bit of gear, get familiar with it, get good with it. Um, be useful, be willing to, to record any kind of music, anything that you can do, um, that gets you in a studio or around music or musicians. I tell people in Nashville, because this is like a songwriter's town, if there's, um, you know, a young songwriter that's nobody knows about and you like their music, well, go help them make their demos because that's you learning to produce. That's an easy situation for you to kind of get into and you to grow with somebody. And, you know, like if you help them record a great song as a demo and they get a record deal, well, you may not get to go wrong, long for the ride, but you know, you'll gain confidence, experience, and people might look to you in the future to, to, to do things with. You really just have to be a self-starter. I don't really know any other way. I mean, that's what I did. I didn't, um, nobody gave me a job. I just had to go and find bands and find work. And I did a lot of live sound too. And the thing is, is you can't ever feel like that you know it all or you've done it all. I'm constantly trying to learn new techniques and kind of keep up with technology and listen to new music and and just be open you just be open to be a co-creator with people uh, that's that's the best i can i can tell you that's awesome i'm curious how did you overcome those harder times like uh, could you go a little bit deeper into that because i think that that's you know i think that that's like the main thing that trips people up is uh when they have years of a dry spell, for mm-hmm. instance, or thing, you know, things like that. I mean, that's. I mean, it is kind of what separates the men from the boys. But I mean, there's specific mechanisms that I think successful people have to that helps them get through that stuff. When I couldn't make enough money to support myself by, by you know, working in music, I went and painted houses because. I could go paint houses for three weeks, and and then if I got a gig, then I didn't, you know, I could just tell them it's like, hey, I'm not going to be here, you know. It's just like I did a low-paying job where I had flexibility to bounce in and out because I really needed to put the focus on being able to um, be available to do what it is I really wanted to do, and I, I couldn't buy a house till I was in my 30s because I spent all my money on gear, I, you know. <laughs> I slept on a mattress on the floor. Until I was like, I don't know, 32 years old because I wasn't willing or didn't need to spend the money to have like a real bed. I wanted to have like a pair, you know, I wanted to have a pair of microphones or a compressor. I put a lot of emphasis on having having the tools and being valuable, like being valuable as a person, as a creative person, but then also having like, you know, having equipment, you know. This is such a do-it-yourself world, you, you know, and it's a cottage, cottage industry world. If you don't have a microphone and a laptop and a way to record and mix, then you know how are you gonna how are you gonna help people? You know how are you gonna help yourself? You just have to make those sacrifices and you just have to stick to it. And I mean, I know that it's that doesn't mean that everybody's gonna get to where they want to be and, and they're gonna fulfill their dreams. It takes a lot of it takes a lot of luck. It takes. And you got to do it over and over again. You know, the first mix I did on a record that went platinum, it didn't, it didn't like seal the deal for the rest of my career. I had to, it opened a door for me. I had to go into that. I had to go through that door and do a good job again and keep working hard. I'm not entitled because of my success. I'm not entitled to anything. I don't feel entitled. I have to go, I have to show up every day and work really hard and be, be motivated and, and a good person to be around. Yeah. It's just, you got to be somebody that people want to be around because if you're if you're kind of a jerk, then you're just leaving yourself out of a lot of opportunities. And and uh, I really don't know. You just got to want it and not give up on it. And even if you don't get everything you desired out of it, make sure that's what you want to do because it become it's your journey. It's it's becomes your life. And and that's really you you got to want it for your life. You definitely can't accomplish anything in this field with half measures. So you got to go all in or not at all, I kind of feel like. Yeah, and and you can't have any regrets if it doesn't. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's like me sitting here now, it's just like I'm I'm very pleased with the way things have gone. But, you know, if you asked me this question at some point over over the last, you know, 28 years, you know, I might have had a two or three year spell where I was very, very bummed and despondent and like, so like, is this ever going to turn around? Is this is this ever going to pay off? You know, and I just you know, it's like, 
there's just I don't ha- I didn't ever have a plan B. I, I feel like that's uh, one of the most common threads I've heard from successful musicians and producers and engineers is uh, they do it because they have to, and there's no thought of a plan B. It's just it is what it is. You're gonna make it work for better or for worse. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your time with us. I think some of the stuff that you've said here has been eye-opening in a lot of different fronts, technical and, you know, how how these kids are really going to take their career to the next level. And uh, thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, my, my pleasure. It's an honor to, to, to be able to do this with you guys. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Jacob. I appreciate you guys, too. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Ibanez Guitars and Basses. Ibanez strives to make high-quality, cutting-edge musical instruments that any musician can afford and enjoy. Visit Ibanez.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today. Hey!